I am the master, and you will obey me. Listen to Dan Hadley on Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, or face the consequences. Time for Type 40, your Doctor Who podcast from the Spacebook on the Fandom Podcast Network. I'm Dan Hadley, Birmingham's King of the Geeks, regular host, Mr. Speaker and Mr. Listener. <laughs> Even more so on this one, I've been catching up with my reading. What am I talking about? Find out here later on, here on our free speaking, big thinking show for everyone, whenever and wherever And however you started your journey with the Doctor, we talk about it all on this show. 15 incarnations of the Time Lord, 61 years and counting. Yes, it may not be an anniversary year, but that doesn't stop us celebrating or exploring it all here on Type 40. Beginning a fresh block of conversations covering the Hooniverse on and off screen. Doctor Who is more than a TV show. It's a whole place that we go to, whether alone or in the company of others. And happily, it's the latter for me today. I am joined by friend of the show, lifelong Doctor Who fan. It's the writer, Will Hadcroft. Hi, Will. Hey, thanks for having me back, Dan. Well, you say back, but this is your first time on the actual podcast world, believe it or not. So we've done videos yeah. with you over on yeah. the YouTube channel. We've done extra bits and pieces. And you've even braved <laughs> you braved the live show, didn't didn't you? The, the stage show at Hooverville with us last oh, yes. September. You yeah. were the one. You were there. But, I uh, was yeah, there. <laughs> I'm delighted mm-hmm. to say you're the first guest that we're going to have back on the podcast for 2024. Oh, thank you very much. You have yeah. to say that. You're here now. <laughs> yeah, I do. So, uh, congratulations on the success of your audiobook. So, uh, The Resurrection Plant yeah. polled very well, didn't it, with the readers of Doctor Who magazine last year? It did indeed. Um, I was uh, second to uh, Power of the Daleks, the target novelization reading. So, I can't argue with that. It's Power of the Daleks. It's read by Nicholas Briggs. But if the 
the audio originals, which is the strand my story is in, mm. um, if they had their own category, then I would have been number one and Andy Lane would have been number two. So uh, I, ah. I take some, I take that to heart, really. The category is BBC Audio, so that is going to include the target novelization readings. But, oh, um, I see. but if, if the audio originals had had their own separate category, I would have been number one. That's very nice to know. You're number one to us, Will, of course you are. With so much Doctor Who being made for the audio medium across different ranges and different licensees, there has to be more Doctor Who existing in audio than any other medium, doesn't there? Yeah. When you think about it, you've got stuff the BBC has put out and things that Big Finish have been doing for over 20 years, there must be yeah more audio Doctor Who than in any other medium other than the television programme. It's probably understandable, isn't it, that the punters could get confused between what's with which line. Yeah, and, and some some even now don't know that the BBC do their own thing. Uh, when I did a signing at, uh, it was either Big Finish Day or Hooverville, the, the, the event um, run by Steve Hatcher in Derby. Yeah. Um, I had somebody approach me uh, and pick up a CD. and What, what, what is this? I, I've not heard of this. Is this Big Finish? I couldn't find it anywhere on their site, he said. And I, I said, it isn't Big Finish, it's BBC Audio. And he said, well, I had no idea they were doing these. And this is someone who's a big fan who goes to conventions, you know. So it's, it is slightly disheartening that um, the range isn't that widely known. But it's because, you know, Big Finish being a, um, a commercial venture, they're not tied down by the rules that apply to the BBC promoting things. They can oh, have their own website, they can have specially made trailers, you know, and really push it. Whereas uh, BBC Audio have whatever budget they have. And uh, apart from uh, a preview and a review in Doctor Who magazine and some other science fiction journals, uh, there, there isn't really much going on to sort of tell people they're there. It's great to have a product with BBC Audio, you know, I mean, in, in terms of how big that is. Um, it's bigger than Big Finish. But in terms of the reach of it, Big Finish is, is bigger than them, which is bizarre, but true. So for people out there who don't know, the audio originals are a series of narrated audio books, actual audio books released by BBC Audio. Uh, the series usually features a range of past doctors and companions in one-hour-ish stories narrated by Doctor Who-related performers. So it's a format that the BBC has been playing with for a little while. But you've yeah. been playing with your entry into this range for a lot, lot longer, and we're going to find oh, out about yes. that as our conversation goes on. Oh, it's very, very exciting. I feel that we're going inside the resurrection plant. Can't wait to get stuck into it all. But that's after I remind you that if you'd like to do some real-time travelling of your own, each and every edition of this show, past, present and future, is just a tap or two away on the device of your choice, but only if you know where to look. A proper time stream chock full of reviews, previews, interviews, geek outs and deep dives with all our regular panellists and lots more awesome guests. There's something for every fan over at type40.podbean.com. We'll remind you about all that again later on and we'll be sure to make contact with that matrix of all knowledge the fandom podcast network to hear about our sister and brother shows that cover all those other geeky pop culture favorites over there 
Okay, so it's back to the classic past now to pin back our, uh, our lug holes. Will, do people still say lug holes? I, do. I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> because there's something amiss on Calico 3. Let's mm. investigate where it all started with Will here. A lot of us have grown up with Doctor Who, most of us, fortunately, when it's actually been on the telly now. It's often credited with beginning many fans on a lifelong love of reading and of the written word. And among them are a good proportion of people who develop their own adventures for the various sets of time travellers that simply must eventually see the light of day somehow and be told, be that unofficially or officially. Will this be ringing any bells to you so far, Will? <laughs> it certainly would, yeah. I, I've been writing Doctor Who stories for years. Um, I remember way back when I was sort of 10 years old, mm. like, like many Doctor Who fans have done uh, of my generation, getting an exercise book and covering it with paper and putting an illustration on the front and yeah. basically trying to mimic the Terence Dix novelizations. Uh, a Doctor Who and, and then a title of your own. And um, I remember getting a cassette recorder and the Doctor Who, the Peter Howell theme music on a single yeah. and uh, the Doctor Who sound effects record, which I won uh, through Doctor Who Weekly. They had a, a thing called Call the Shots. And I remember. Uh, you had to come up with um, a sound effect for a comic book, you know, so a sound for a comic book. So... Uh, it was a hundred Doctor Who LPs, Sound Effects LPs, up for grabs. And I said to my mum, I can't think of anything. And she said, what about Zweezk? So I said, okay, how do you write that down? <laughs> so <laughs> it was Z, or if we're in America, Z, W, E, 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 S, K, exclamation mark. So I put that on a postcard, sent it into Doctor Who Weekly. And then... Um, I came back from a school trip to York um, and uh, found uh, this big square envelope on the mantelpiece with my name on it. And um, my mother had got the latest Doctor Who weekly out. And she said, right, just have a look down this list. And there was my name about a third of the way or halfway down the first column of names, yeah. William Hadcroft Manchester. And she said, right, now go and have a look at that square parcel on the mantelpiece, and I opened it up, and there it was, the Doctor Who sound effects record. And I was astonished by it, um, that the fact that I won it. I love the image of the, you know, from the opening yeah. credits, the TARDIS going up the time corridor on the front and the tunnel on the back. Um, and all the sound effects on it, uh, but baffling, the most baffling absence of sound was the TARDIS noise wasn't on it. You had the inside of the TARDIS. Oh, yeah. When it was stationary or when it was moving, you had the two sounds. You had the doors opening and closing and the scanner screen, but not taking off and landing, uh, which which is strange because it's the, the most famous Doctor Who sound it's effect. It's a bit odd now you mention it. <laughs> so that was on there, but I can remember getting to the, the inside of the TARDIS ambience and the door noise and so forth. And, uh, and the funny thing was that that evening, because my grandma had come round, my mum had phoned her up and said, oh, he's won this record. And so she came round. <laughs> we, we played it like a, an ordinary album. <laughs> so we put it on the turntable and you'd get these 
strange noises going on for however many minutes and yeah. some, some short ones. And I remember my grandma just frowning like that and going, what, what, what is it again, Margaret? What is it again? <laughs> she, she, had, she couldn't <laughs> comprehend what we're doing listening to this, you know. She must have thought it was music from the programme. So she couldn't couldn't understand all these strange noises. My mum had to explain. No, it's it's like if you're doing a stage play and you need background noises. That's what these records are for. So anyway, I I, I had the record. I had the the Peter Howell theme music record. And so with the tape recorder, I used to make my own Doctor Who recordings. And I'd get my brothers and friends to play different parts. And if, if no one would play along, I'd do it all on my own and play everybody. <laughs> uh, and I've still got some of these tapes somewhere. They're in a box somewhere. Uh, so I, I, I've been interested in writing Doctor Who for television and books and audio pretty much all my life, really. Writing something for other people to read in their heads, mm. in their own time, in their own their own sort of inner voice is one thing but writing something that another human being is going to essentially read aloud two slightly different disciplines of the same craft they are indeed i mean if, if you know an actor is going to be reading what you've written um so it's not you know read by the author it's uh, a properly trained actor an actor who's been in the program um the interesting thing with the resurrection plant was once I'd been told it was Fraser Hines reading it, there's a, a certain thrill to that in knowing yeah. that when he spoke Jamie's lines, he would be Jamie. Um, obviously, he was the narrator, so he was impersonating Patrick Troughton. And I was, I was, as soon as I knew he was going to be doing it, I knew that would sound good because I'd heard him do it before. Uh, but to have lines that I've written for Jamie played by Jamie. Um, it's the ne the nearest I've got to having a full cast drama, you know, where I've heard interviews with authors of Big Finish plays who've said the hair goes up on the back of your neck when the, the actor who played the character on television is saying the lines you wrote mm -hmm. for them. Well, I've had a little bit of, bit of a taste of that with the resurrection plant because every time he said Jamie's lines, he was Jamie. Um, the other thing as well was that when you're writing it, you're thinking, I hope he reads it the way I'm thinking it, you know? You you know the actor may interpret sentences and the narrative and even character voices differently than the way you thought of them. But I have to say, he he, he pretty much got it bang on. There's there's um there's a scene where um the doctor learns of something terrible that's happened. And I wrote it thinking of Patrick Troughton. I wrote the, word, the, the the reply, oh dear, but I thought of it as, oh dear. Yeah, I very noticed much, that. Very much the way he did it in The Five Doctors when he realises they, they may be playing a game of Rassilon at this very moment. And when it dawns on him, he goes, oh dear. And I wrote it thinking it that's how Patrick would deliver yeah. it. And then when I got the CD, I was so thrilled that Fraser had, delivered it exactly that way <laughs> so so it it's been a joy to have it brought to life like that because it's important to clarify isn't it that this isn't written in the third person it's not written from jamie's point of view it's written with the narrator's voice and it's yeah. fraser who's had to interpret to create to channel 
all of those characters in exactly the same way that you've just been describing that you did way back in your childhood like that, except that obviously Fraser is a, an actor with decades worth of, of work behind him, a very respected, very well-loved British institution, Fraser Hines. Mm. Yeah, a, a, joy to, uh, a joy to have him do it. Uh, or, originally, very early on in the process, I was told that uh, they were thinking of Wendy Pabry. Wendy Pabry mm. would probably do it. So I spent months thinking what it would sound like with Wendy Pabry doing it and then when it got closer to making the recording, they booked Fraser. And then so I had to, goodbye, Wendy. <laughs> it's not you doing it now. It's uh, Fraser. Because it would have been the same, but different. Obviously, the story would have been the same. The words would have been the same, but it yeah, would have been yeah. very different. Would it, it would have had a different, different feel. It would have had a different feel. Although I, then I would have had the thing of, oh, she's saying Zoe's lines. You know, the, <laughs> yeah. the, way, the way Zoe, she is Zoe. I, w- I would have had that. But from that perspective, you know that that that, that feeling. I'm glad. I'm glad that uh, Fraser did this one, because I think the type of story that it is a, ma- a male voice, and the fact that he can impersonate Patrick so well, you've yeah. got two for the price of one. You've got Jamie performed by the guy who was Jamie, but you've got someone who can play the second Doctor and sound quite close to him. Uh, so the the dialogue between the two of them works really well but then you've got the um the characters that i created which he has no template for you know uh he doesn't go oh yeah i know what ren sounds like oh yeah i know what the regent is i know how trace will deliver this like he doesn't know he's relying relying on his acting instincts and i think the producer michael stevens would have been the director as well i, th- I think in the recording there's only neil gardner the recordist um Michael Stevens, the producer, and the reader present uh, for these. And sound design is put on later, of course. And the whole idea is that all those component parts come together, don't they? They coalesce, mm. everything gels. Mm. And we, as as listeners, as readers, if you like, we get served a brand new slice of classic Doctor Who that's new but old at the same time, as if mm. it could be something of the classic era that somehow fell between the cracks somewhere. Mm. The TARDIS brings its occupants to Calico 3, an Earth-like planetoid where industrial foundries are worked alongside sophisticated technology. The Doctor is staggered to learn about the resurrection plant, which rebirths anyone mortally wounded in the line of their work. While Jamie's put to work in the foundry, Zoe and the Doctor investigate the plant. But when the machine goes terribly wrong, they must work with the locals to combat a horrifying monster. The Doctor also uncovers a shameful secret that, for him at least, it's close to home. It was released in August of 2022, eventually. But the gestation period for your story stretched back some considerable time before then, didn't it? So how did the Mm. resurrection plant start its life? I've been telling people that I I didn't know whether it was originally a a virgin new adventure slash missing adventure in the 1990s Mm. or a BBC books past Doctor adventure. Uh, Well, I now know, because I've rooted through my personal diaries, that it was uh, a BBC Books Past Doctor Adventure submission. Uh, it was okay. late 2002. I think it was November 2002 um, that, that, that I submitted it. Uh, and it was a Seventh Doctor and Ace story. 
called The Sanctity of Death. So that was its original mm -hmm. title. And the idea of that is that if people are being worked to death and being resurrected and then worked to death again and resurrected again over and over and over, uh, the, the, the sanctity of life becomes meaningless uh, if you're just basically being put to work endlessly. Um, you have no quality of life. You're just an extension of the machinery that you're operating. And uh, if you can be, you know, killed during the operation of this dangerous machinery and then just brought back and put back to work, there is no sanctity of life. So I, I called it the sanctity of death, was very pleased with that title. I thought it had a nice poetic ring to it. Um, and I, the story was basically the seventh Doctor and Ace arrive on this planetoid where it's heavily industrialized. Uh, some similarities to 19th century England and the Industrial Revolution. And um, it's literally you know, people being worked to death. Um, I had the idea uh, when I was working <laughs> when I was working for a bank. We won't say which bank it is, <laughs> but really? I was I was working in um, a customer service center. Okay. Uh, but prior to that, I'd worked in a soft drink, drinks factory in my twenties, and uh, and often did feel like um, it didn't matter who I was really, as long as I worked the machinery, as long as I got the tests right. Uh, as if you it, were part of the machine almost. Yeah, and, and in the bank, it was all a lot of emphasis on productivity and percentages. And, uh, you, you know, you if you weren't as good as some of the other people on your team, you that you were, you were told that, uh, you know. Um, you, you never felt valued truly, you know. Even though they said we value you, it felt hollow. Because you, and this is not a criticism of the managers or, or anybody else, because they were under the same kind of pressure too, from the people above them. You know, they had to meet quotas and productivity had to be met, or 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 else. So you were always under that kind of pressure. And I, I did have the the thought, you know, if if they were able to grant us eternal life, <laughs> they would, they would work, <laughs> us, work us to death over and over and over, and you know, forever. Um, so I had that in the back of my mind. Uh, um, again, I'm not targeting any individuals, and I have fond memories of, of the people I work with and of that time. But that thought did uh, occur to me way, way back then. And um, so that was kind of the backbone of the story. I, li I like my stories to have a thematic content, you know. I I'm very much... Um, of the school of Barry Letts and Terence Dix. Yeah, I don't know if you ever saw the Myth Makers uh, interviews, the two-part interview that they did. And, and they said that although they were not into um, messaging, you know, they weren't into uh, lecturing the audience about a particular thing, they did like a, their stories to mm. have a theme that ran all the way through because that helped the writer stay on track. If, if they ran out of ideas or uh, were struggling to complete the story, they would get them in and say, okay, well, let's just remind ourselves, what is this about? And they Actually would go, about, yeah. Go back to the basic theme, uh, and then they were able to get more able to get more out of the writer and complete the story. And that's always struck me that um, it doesn't matter. You can, you can go off on tangents as you're doing it. You know, you will get ideas as you're writing it that you didn't think of when you wrote the synopsis or the treatment. Mm. Uh, but I think there should be a thread running all the way so through. So it can have a little life of its own and, and have a sort of natural evolution 
mm. up to a point, expand up to yeah. a point. But as long as the the core the core story is there with its relevant themes and it's it all ties together with as they say the beginning, the middle, and the end. And yeah. there's no ideally no plot holes. Have an ending in mind. Yeah. It might not be the ending you use in the end. You know, you might have thought, oh, I've got a, I've thought of a better way of ending. But is is a narrative conclusion an end point mm. to the story? Is mm. that different from from something thematically where you think, okay, what is this about, and what mm. are what are we trying to collectively say? Which questions yeah. do we want to leave the reader, the listener, the viewer with? Those are two different things as well, aren't they? Yeah. And you can you can say let's explore this idea, but you're not you're not setting out to make a point, you know. Yeah. You're not saying right. This is what I believe about this, and you're gonna hear it. You know, it's not that kind of approach. It's it's really asking questions and allowing the audience to make up their own mind. So you you might present different aspects and different angles on the thread that runs all the way through, yeah. and you might have certain opinions voiced by certain characters. I think as long as you have the opposite point of view also voiced, then you're not going to run into the problem. Of- I think you do that mm. particularly well in this, not just on one level, but mm. on two. I wanted to, I want the theme is really exploitation. A certain, sort of certain, certain thoughts on commercialism and um, capitalism, I suppose, uh, but also on the value of life. Uh, there are a number of threads running concurrently all the way through it. Uh, and in the original thing, it was Seventh Doctor and Ace. They stumble across this this place. Um, the so the core idea was there in the sanctity of death. The the gestalt creature which emerges later on that was in the original idea. Um, and the fact that the, this community had somehow come by te- uh, time lord technology and aug- augmented it with their own. That was in the original idea. Uh, so this was all submitted to BBC Books in 2002. Yeah. When we talk about, I wouldn't say received wisdom, actually it's just wisdom. The, the wisdom of people like Terence Dix and Barry Letts, who made the show very successfully, the proof that they knew what they, they were talking about is there for anybody to see, isn't there, in how popular the show yeah. was when they were doing it. But something else that's often said by other creatives involved in the show is that uh, it's almost inconsequential who plays the Doctor, that the Doctor is always the Doctor. And and then their place in the average story is largely the same. Here you are talking about a story that you conceived you conceived of with one incarnation in place, with, with just one companion, and it makes its way through the process, eventually featuring a different cast altogether and recapturing mm. a feeling from a period in the sh- in, in the show's history, which was nearly two decades prior to that mm. on screen. So how did the Doctrine Ace exit and the second Doctor, Zoe and Jamie, come into the picture? How did that happen? Well, it's, it's an interesting process, really. Um, so BBC Books rejected it, uh, I think, mm. 2004, I think. What, what happened was in 2002, they said, yes, we like this idea, send us more. So I sent them more. And then at two th- in 2003, I would have sent off the sample chapters and the synopsis that I've been working on. And then in 2004, they said, no, it's not for us. And that was that. So it was shelved. But I always thought it was a good idea. So we fast forward to 2019, and one month after my my mother passed away, 
um, John Ainsworth from BBC Audio gets in touch and asks, um, well, he says that Michael Stevens, the producer, is, is looking for new writers for this range. Uh, would I like to submit some ideas? And he said, chiefly, we would like three different storylines. So, well, not storylines, they're just ideas uh, initially. So you, two or three paragraphs for each idea. And I thought, well, this is my chance to pitch the sanctity of death again. I can't remember what the other two things were now. I, 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 I've lost the original email because I'm, I'm using a different <laughs> email service. I can't go back and find out what the others were. So in between the sanctity of death being rejected mm. and the resurrection plant being commissioned, being accepted, mm. you'd actually published several books, hadn't you, successfully? Yeah. Yeah, I had um, I'd, I'd, I went on a creative writing course. Um, I was unemployed. This is in, in between the soft drinks factory and starting with the bank. I went, I went on um, a creative writing course that my mother paid for because she could see I was keen on, on doing it. Mm. And so I, I was thinking in terms of creating something that was marketable and that, that would, you know, hit the spot. So I came up with this idea. I, I was, like you, I grew up on these children's BBC and, ch and children's ITV shows, you know, like Aliens in the Family and Chucky and uh, the Tripods and, all, all, you know, all these uh, adaptations of uh, of classic books, Stig of the Dump with Keith Jane as Stig. You know, I love these things. And I always wanted to to create something like that. And so I thought, I'm going to do the famous five, set it on a council estate, only there's four of them, and one of them is an android. <laughs> and um, and so that's how Android came about. Um, okay. I wrote it when I was 26 as um, an episode one of a six-part serial that will be shown on children's bbc that was the idea oh i see um and then in so this was 1996 and then in 2000 heard an interview with a a, a small book publishing company that was starting out in stockport in the northwest and they were looking for authors so i turned my episode one handwritten script into uh the first three sample chapters of android and century lodge and wrote a synopsis as to how it would develop and sent that in. And um, they published it on the 13th of June, 2002. I'll never forget that date. Um, so a small press novel sold in the low hundreds. And then from there on, I slowly grew it. There are three Android novels at the moment. There's a fourth on the laptop that no one's seen and three more in my head that need developing. <laughs> um, but then there are, there's a teenage, a teen novel, young adult novel called The Blueprint, which is a sort of bit like The Prisoner mixed with Grange Hill, if you can imagine that. Uh, stories I can about imagine that, funnily enough, but then again, yeah. I went to school in the 1980s, so of course well, I can imagine that. And then um, I, I was contacted by a lady called Teresa in 2009, who uh, had read some stuff that I'd written and was keen to know where I was going next. And by this point, I'd, I was self-publishing but not having much success. I'd, I'd had that first Android one with a small press. I'd published a couple of other things with a, a bigger independent company, but still, they were international, but still quite small, you know? Um, and then I'd had a go at self-publishing, uh, but had no idea about sales and marketing. I was hopeless. 
So because she did have some idea about sales and marketing, she said, well, why, why don't we get together and you, you, know, you write the stuff and we'll set our own thing up and we'll publish it and I'll try and help sell it for you. So that became Fabulous Books, FBS, Fabulous Books. And if you go to FBS Publishing, it's fbs-publishing.co.uk, you'll see all the stuff we've done to date. We've published Colin Baker. We've published Sixth Sense, which is his collection of newspaper articles. We've published Terry Malloy's Montmorency. I always get tongue-tied with this. Montmorency Montgomery Bear, which is a story about his teddy bear, uh, Monty, who you may have met if you've met uh, Terry. Monty's never too far behind. So this was this was all there, building up towards BBC Audio. But I'd known John Ainsworth for about. 16 years um met him quite by chance in the early 2000s uh so i knew he had a background in in magazine editing he'd edited cult times i don't know if you remember that um he he did some of the the typesetting and graphic design for some of our books because we, we needed someone who knew the way around the in design package and i knew that he he would know that yeah. so it has been suggested to me uh, the gentleman, uh, Ian Wheeler, he suggested to me that I might have kind of got where I have because I'm not a one-trick pony. You know, there, there, are, there are a lot of Doctor Who fans who write, but they only write Doctor Who. And, mm. um, or I, and maybe someone who writes other things as well and has had a measure of success, you know, modest success with some other things maybe that kind of lends itself to editors and producers thinking, okay, it's not just Doctor Who, he has done these other things. Ian might be right there. But anyway, John Ainsworth sends me this email. I send three ideas in. They like the sanctity of of death best. But before they settled on it, I thought about the Doctor and Companion lineup. So it was still the seventh Doctor and Ace in my head. But because I was thinking of the Time Lord connection with it, I thought, what if we... Because obviously you've got all that Times Champion stuff with the Seventh Doctor, haven't you? Like the Curse mm. of Fenric and all that, you know? So that was that would have been the road I would have gone down if I'd have used the Seventh Doctor. Um, but I thought, well, what, what if we go the other way? What if we go backwards? What if we go to the Second Doctor and a time in the, the program's history where nobody knew anything about him. You know, pr- prior to the war games, nothing is known. Not even the, the name no. Time Lord is in, our, in the vocabulary of the viewers, you know. Um, we don't know where he's from. We don't know what he is, why he ran away from his own world. And we don't know anything. And he's clearly not inclined to divulge that information. But of, you know, later on, you've got the Sixth Doctor holding his lapels and going, I am a Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey <laughs> in the constellation of Gasturbrus, you know, and, if, and it's there on a plate for a complete stranger, you know, Russell in Attack of the Sidewing as it handed to him. But in the 1960s Doctor Who, nothing is revealed. And the Doctor is very cagey about people finding anything out about him. So I thought, wouldn't it be great if we had the second Doctor with Jamie and Zoe you know, in just a, a few stories' time, it would be the war games and they would learn everything. What if they go somewhere before that 
and it's there's a good chance the doctor's identity might be exposed by the people he's dealing with in this story of mine. How would he react um, if his identity was threatened and and, and his whereabouts potentially revealed to the Time Lords, you know? Because um, whilst there isn't wouldn't... an arc, Will, to the second mm. Doctor, to that second incarnation mm. of the Doctor played by Patrick Troughton, in the same way that we recognise character arcs now, some great leaps of story and great transformations, mm. there, is a, there are subtle differences to his performance, how he responds to situations. And also, the era itself as well changes subtly. I think his first season, it's sort mm. of a little bit of a hangover from the Hartnell stuff, and it starts to assert its own identity. Then it becomes very monsters-led, but then when, when Terence Dix becomes a, a greater sort of voice on it, I think it starts to expand into the, the more sort of adventure, adventurous realm. I think it always feels like there's something in the, back of, in the back of the second Doctor's mind, as if he can't carry on having fun forever. Yeah, you get the, you get the feeling that, oh, who cares, you know, where we end up next, it's all a big laugh, really. But you, you don't get the feeling with him that it's all a big laugh. Um, it feels like a big laugh for the audience. We're going from one place to the next. We don't know where we're going next and uh, and the unpredictability of it. Because, well, he speaks quite quickly as well. But when anybody mm. actually corners him and asks him questions that really matter, mm. he gets a lot less loose-lipped. Mm. And you t you describe him in your book, too, as, he sort of, as having, at one point, he, he's, he's got his lips pursed. Mm, as if he's mm. trying to hold in the words and and let the precise words, well-chosen words, leave his lips. He's aware mm. that he's being, he could be compromised. And that's, yeah. and that's again, at several points in this book. Well, the, the moment I switched it from the seventh Doctors of the second, I started to think about the implications. Mm. I, I knew I had something, you know? I mean, I liked the story before, but I, I, I knew this was better. Very often, the stakes don't seem that high for the Doctor. You know, we know he'll go in and save the day. But if, if you put him into a situation where he wants to top the bad guys as he normally does, and he wants to, you know, champion the underdog and, and help the people and et cetera, et cetera, but by so doing, might expose who he is. The Time Lords might find his location and come for him. Yeah, would he be so cavalier under those circumstances? And I had a great deal of fun playing with that. Uh, when I when um, I submitted it, because I was obviously I was very keen to impress John Ainsworth and Michael Stevens. Um, I decided I hadn't been asked to do this, but I decided I would write one scene. I'd write one scene up and send it with the idea. Uh, once once they'd said yes, we like the sanctity of death. See the next the next phase of the process is they want then want a two page synopsis of the entire story. So what you do is you write down the full story, everything that's going to happen, who's in it, how it will end, everything. So this is this is a, a little sort of a thing for aspiring writers now, really. That if an editor asks you for a synopsis, they don't mean a lengthy blurb, you know, where mm. you leave things in abeyance at the end, but what is the mystery, dot, dot, dot? You don't do that. You tell them the whole thing. 
and that's what this two-page synopsis was. And I thought, even at this stage, it, it could be rejected because it, it wasn't a commission, you know. They said, we yeah. like, out of the three ideas, we like this one the best, develop it into a two-page synopsis. Now, I could have sent that in and they could have said, no, it's not what we thought, and that would be the end of it. So I needed to convince them. So I wrote up one scene, and it's the penultimate scene of the story. Uh, you will know this, having heard it, where the Doctor and the other character are in the office, and they kind of make an arrangement, really. Uh, I promise I will do this if you will do that. I promise I won't do this if you won't do that. Yeah. that. That kind of exchange, which is something the Doctor doesn't normally do. There are no deals with a bad guy. The switching of the incarnations mm. really does work in its favour, in your mm. favour. Mm -hmm. Because I think had it remained with the Seventh Doctor, it would have been, and please don't take this the wrong way because it's a very strong story, but it would have likely have been another story where the Seventh Doctor is under threat of being compromised. There's something very mysterious. He's kind of pulling the strings, but he isn't. He ought, he's mm. one step ahead of everybody else. Mm. And I think, it, do you see what I'm saying? It would have mm. it would have fallen very nicely into that. Oh, this is this is a very Seventh Doctor kind of story, mm -hmm. but because it isn't that incarnation, and, and we know how the Seventh Doctor responds to that. We know the kinds of things he says, and we know we know as well, not just through TV Doctor Who, but through a lot of expanded media how far he would take that. But I think the mm. second Doctor is, a, despite the fact that they're both smaller, kind of Chaplin-esque characters, I actually think they're, they're a lot more different than people give them credit for being. Mm, they are, they are. And uh, when, I, when I sent off the scene that I'd written up attached with this synopsis, I'm pretty certain it's that scene that sold it, really, uh, mm. because I know Michael really like that scene. Riveting listening, Will. I'd written far too much, and I, I thought, right, I'm going to have to be ruthless now. I know what, I know how it goes with uh, writers and editors. You know, you have to be ruthless, and sometimes you have to get rid of things that you really love. And in, the, in chopping it down to the correct word count, I got rid of that penultimate scene. And the <laughs> complaint came through, you know, from Michael. Why have you got rid of that scene? That's the best bit, you know. And it also is really what the whole thing was about in terms of the Doctor's relationship with the villain. Mm. So I was so pleased when he said that because I, I saw it as the best part of it. You know, that's the first scene I'd written for the whole thing. And it was my favourite part of the story. So then I was able to put it back in and get rid of some of the things instead. Uh, but that that I'm very very happy with that penultimate scene and the way Fraser reads it too. He really gets it, uh, the intent of the Doctor and of the villain there. It doesn't get in the way of either character either, does he? You never hear Fraser Hines. You certainly don't hear mm. Jamie. No. You hear the Doctor. You hear the other character, and with with the listener very much in mind that it is it it is riveting even if you know where the story goes obviously when you listen to it a second time it mm. doesn't lose any of its kind of mystique it's still very compelling well thank you i i i think it is but then i wrote it <laughs> so it's nice to <laughs> nice to hear that others think the same but obviously we hear this a lot don't we from from writers i mean speaking broadly now about the writing process about getting something from off the off the page through this this process, this machine, however you want to call it, mm. to to be received by 
by the the reader or the listener or the viewer. We hear, oh, that we lost this, we lost that, things had to be mm. cut because of, of X, Y, and Z. It's something that mm. we're used to reading as Doctor Who fans through pieces in, in magazines, be it the Doctor Who magazine, be it a fanzine or Vortex, or any one of mm. a number of publications. It's something that all writers talk about. But actually going through that with your own piece of work, is, is that a challenge, even if you're working for people who you've known for a time, people who you've certainly got a lot of faith in and trust in. How yeah. challenging is that? It's a tricky one, really, because certainly for that first one, it's like, my goodness, they're going to do it. That's the first thought. <laughs> you know, you, you get told, yes, yeah. we will commission this and it will probably come out next year. You start being told all this stuff when you've not written a word of it apart from that one scene. So you've, you've then got the right we're doing it and now i have to do it so you've you've got that <laughs> feeling so you churn the thing out and you're really happy uh, knocking it out you know and thinking you're being so clever <laughs> and then uh, you find out you've written uh, 10,000 it's going to be 10,000 words for a one hour story is 10,000 words and you've written, you know, nearly 20,000. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I've written all this stuff that, you know, background to the characters, which you want, you know, you want character development and to, for the audience to, to see who they are before things happen to them. But then you, you end up with 10 pages that you've got to get rid of. Uh, 10,000 words works out at around 20 A4 pages. I'd written 30 A4 pages by the end. So I said to John, you know, I've written far too much. I know I have, but just have a look at it, see what you think, and then we can start deciding what we're going to get rid of. Uh, th I mean, there was a whole there was a whole section between the um, the family at the beginning. Mm. Was in, in the, the published version, the Doctor, Jamie Zoe, they join the family just as they're receiving back from the resurrection plant their daughter, Reime. Um Now, in the first draft, we have a whole set of scenes where we see how their family works and what they're like and what the different characters of them are uh, so that when she's killed... Uh, trying to fix a, dr a, dr a massive drill head, you know, the drilling down in this foundry. And um, and the drill head goes wrong and she basically gets pulverised. It comes back on while she's trying to fix it mm. uh, and is killed. Uh, I wanted the audience to feel that and then when she's resurrected, go, oh, she's back and, ha and have that going on. Well, all that had to go. So we start the story with the Doctor Jamie and Zoe arriving and we have the mystery of the family being excited that their daughter's coming back. And they, it does actually make it more mysterious because you, you as the listener don't know what's happened to her initially. Uh, so in the end, I cut. it was hard to cut it because I really like those scenes. But I knew from all the interviews I've seen over the years with other writers, you know, sometimes you have to that awful phrase, you have to kill your favourite babies, uh, which means, in author terms, you might have characters, you might have lines of dialogue or scenes that you really love, you're in love yeah, with them, but they've got to go because they don't serve the story, you know? If we're cutting down the words to get it down to 10,000 words, things are going to have to go, and some of those things might be your favourite scenes. Uh, so I knew I had to be ruthless. You've got that 
of course, where things you've got a, a word count to hit, you've got certain practicalities, restrictions of writing mm. to an established format, to a, mm. a, a budget, because obviously the people above have got th th uh, they've got their targets as well, things that are unmovable. Mm. But you've also got from coming from the other side of it, here you are here you are working in a, a different medium, which you kind of got the best of both worlds in some senses, because mm. there are things that you can do with audio that that extra sense can help with if you've got to lose a scene or some words mm. then maybe you can make up for that with something that that one can achieve in audio that you couldn't with the written word through sound effects through mm. sound design be that in the way that uh, that locations are realized for the years so that we we kind of know we are where we are without being told where we are you know mm, we, we're not we don't need to be told yeah. about a room with pistons and things like that if we can hear pistons in the background general yeah. description and let the sounds do it yeah. yeah yeah and it's the same when you you can employ sound effects for example that are associated with a show like doctor Who with all its longevity and its history mm -hmm. sound effects that fans of the show will recognize from other stories other eras of the show on television and that association that instant recognition will also do some work for you tell some of the story mm. fill in a bit of a gap or leave a question hanging in the air intrigue i think it can generate intrigue mm. too and that's something that the resurrection plant does at select points too doesn't it which oh, can't have been in your original conception um some some of it was. Um, I like. I wrote a line. Claxon uh, uh, went off in the distance, and then David Rucroft, the sound designer, who's done a brilliant job on this, um, you can hear the clanging of metal and all the stuff going on yeah. in the distance, and then you hear a klaxon go off as the narrator says it. Yeah. Uh, so I, when I was writing the line, I was hoping whoever does the sound design will pick <laughs> up on that, you know, and put one in. But then there, 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 there are lots of little subtle things that David has done with it, where he's picked up on certain lines in the narrative and put sounds in. I mean, it, it staggers me with that recording because you forget when you're listening to it that this is not a full cast drama. Um, no. you, it draws you in. The sound design really draws you in, that you feel like you are in this place that's being described. And so you've got that industrial sound, but then you've got a few recognisable Doctor Who sounds in it, and you know what they are as soon as you hear them. Uh, so, I mean, that there's a particular sound um, from the modern series, the regeneration sound effect, um, kicks in at a certain point. And you don't need the narrative to say, and then they, he started to regenerate. You know, no. you know what that noise is. Um, <laughs> And um, that that's great. That that that's that sort of stuff is where David Rucroft really came into his own. Other things I, I had a little bit of fun with, like the Gallifrey and Staser rifle. Um, that yeah. familiar, damn, yeah, that, that sound. That really hit me, you know, because yeah. of the way that it's all arranged. When when that come comes into your into your ear, 
it sort of rattles around. If you're listening to it on a headset like I was, when that sort of rattles around your head, it's it's such a stark, such a harsh noise. It's, mm. And I wasn't expecting it, even though the Gallifreyan Staser is on the cover to the CD. <laughs> That's how engrossed, <laughs> and it did it the second time as well. That's yeah, how engrossed yeah, yeah. I was in the resurrection plant. Is that it took me by surprise both times? Yeah, uh, the funny thing with that is that we were talking about the Doctor Who sound effects LP earlier. Yeah, um, the back on the back cover of the sound effects LP, you know, side B, whatever the track is, it says Gallifrey and Stays have gone three blasts. So you get the damn three times. So when it, it, I had, to, I just had to put it in as a sort of nod to that. When you talked about winning the album earlier on, I thought, mm. oh, is that more connective tissue? Mm. That it is, it is, it is. So you've got the line in in it. I don't know if John and Michael even picked up on this because nobody ever said anything in the notes, you know, that I got back. Yes. But doc, the doctor says uh, that's a Gallifrey and stays a gun. Or stays a rifle, yeah. and it goes off three times, and he goes three blasts, and then they go and you know they run. <laughs> um, and I thought, I wonder if anyone sees that. It doesn't, it doesn't break the story, the elements that are included in this, and it's yeah. the same with the characterization as well. They never ever dilute any of the power, the meaning behind mm. the themes of this story, the questions mm. that you're asking, the the time the feel that you're trying to evoke none of it ever breaks that and even even this one now knowing you as i do will i did smile i did you know what i'm going to say don't you he even knows that no idea <laughs> <laughs> uh, the black hole of tarsus gets a name check i thought now yeah. that's bit of will hadcroft he loves the sixth doctor of it course it is it doesn't matter that the, it's the black hole of tarsus this guy he's talking to knows more than he should and he knows things that a person on that planetoid, planetoid yeah. wouldn't know. They don't have the technology to know that the black hole of Tartarus exists or where it is in space, you know. Mm. Uh, so this this guy who, who lets it slip, you know, the Doctor realises, oh, yeah, so you know about that then, do you? So I thought, why well, will I not have... It could have been anything, really, in outer space, you know. I don't know <laughs> if I'd recently watched the trial again, at, you know, when I was <laughs> writing it. I might have done... It makes me think of, of Gridlock when Russell T. Davies said, why would I invent my own race of giant crabs or, or creatures mm. when Doctor Who already has a race of giant crabs stroke creatures that I can, I can trade off, I can have a little bit of fun with. It's mm. just a bit of mumbo jumbo that it's, mm. it's just there. It's still fulfilling the same function. Mm. So you can have a bit of fun. The audience who... Twig it, you know, they go, oh, I know what that is. And others, it might go right over their head. It doesn't matter because the story is still fulfilling its its main function. Characterising Jamie and Zoe, well, and the Doctor's relationships together, all of those relationships and various combinations of between the three of them, That's they're very finely balanced, aren't they, between the three performers when you watch those stories back it's unmistakable and you could say that of any era of doctor who but i mm. think that and this is not necessarily any, any fault of any of the actors involved some combinations of doctors and companions are more memorable than others aren't they but yeah. I, I believe that this is one of the strongest of the series entire run 
So yeah. when it when it comes to that kind of the the exchanges between those between those characters, how did you find how did you find that tapping into the voices that you've been watching on on Blu-ray, on DVD, yeah, yeah, on VHS, yeah. and on all these years? Did they just come to you, or was that again a little bit of backwards and forwards between yourself and John and Michael? Before I sat down to write it properly, I I, I did watch the Invasion and the War Games again. But these characters, like you say, they've been in our lives a long, long time. I mean, I first saw the second Doctor, JB and Zoe, and the Crotons in the Five Faces of Doctor Who. That's so the very I. first time I saw them. I'd heard about the first two Doctors from my mother, she would tell me, because she didn't think Tom Baker was any good. She liked Patrick Trout the best, so I used to hear a lot about him. So when the Crotons came on, it was great, you know, to see them. And then you've got the second Doctor and Jamie opposite Colin and Nicola in the two Doctors. So they've been thread threaded through my my teenage years, right through really. So I knew I knew instinctively how they would speak to one another. But just to make sure, I rewatched the Invasion and the uh, the War Games again. Uh, so it was pretty easy to write their dialogue. But uh, I was paid a really great compliment by John. Uh, there's a line um, about the Sonic Screwdriver where the character Ren says, um, you know, where's that, where have you got that from type of thing, um, as yeah. it, it looks like a product of a civilised society or something, a highly civilised society. And the Doctor says, uh, no, it comes from a highly civilised mind, meaning that he built it himself. Uh, and, and John put in the margin, you know, what a wonderful line that is so the second Doctor. It's exactly the sort of thing he would say. So they, I was very proud of that, that they, they felt I'd nailed it with the way he speaks, and the, the other two as well, but particularly the way he speaks. Uh, I got his voice. Again, the series at this point was still in its early years. Now, when you look back at a show that's in, in its 61st year, mm. but at the time... To be on on television for five or six years, that was considered to be a long, a really long running TV show. That those who who were making it considered it to be reaching the end of its natural life, hmm. and yet the the scope of it, what it was capable of, and the growth of the character was only just only just beginning. And Troughton was only playing with it here and there, wasn't he? And hmm. Hmm. I can imagine that the the actors and actresses who played the companions back then would probably feel quite confined by these characters, mm. by the "what does that mean, doctors?" and all that kind of things, and "oh, doctor," and all the all those things that we now know. Mm. But the truth of the matter is that, as fans, we love all that. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it's part. We of don't the want them posiness. to change too much, do we? I mean, in my, yeah. in my story, I gave them more to do. I was very conscious that they would just be stood there like lemons in the background while the doctor explains everything. So I thought, we've got to have Zoe doing something on a computer. Because I remember the line in uh, The Invasion where the soldiers say to the brig or the captain or whoever, you know, can't we keep her, sir? She's much more prettier than a computer. We've got to use that intelligence. It's like Mel being a computer programmer, but you never see her on one. We've got to use what she's supposed to be in some way. So I made sure she got on a computer uh, in the story, and I had Jamie in some action scenes um, battling the monster that comes later on. I really like the scenes between, is it Trace and Zoe, 
where she's mm. explaining mm. to Zoe, she believes she's explaining to her how this technology works, but Zoe is already, she already knows. She's already a few steps ahead. It wasn't that kind of precocious, I know everything kind of character that in, mm. in my belief, we see a lot, a lot of in 21st century sci-fi adventure storytelling. Yeah. It was more subtle than that. Like you say, back in the day in the 1960s episodes, uh, you could have somebody who was very clever like Zoe, and she might put Jamie down a bit for a laugh, you know. It's, it's amusing to, to see those exchanges. But that's between friends. She doesn't put down the guest characters, if you like. No. And something else which I don't think I was aware of either, I'd never really thought about. You think about it at the beginning of the show with, with Susan and Ian and Barbara, because we, we see it happen. Mm. But later on, the Doctor meets new people, and they all start mm. travelling together. And it's almost mm. like... It's almost as if they perfectly fit into the place that the previous companion was, and <laughs> it's all jolly hockey sticks, and oh, isn't this all fun? But in here, you you do circle a little that unspoken agreement between the Doctor and his travelling companions, that they can only ask so much of him, and that this is what they get in return, and that's kind of the unspoken conditions. It's quite a sophisticated idea in character terms. I think there's a lot of sophisticated moments in this and your story it's not an old-fashioned story at all and the themes aren't necessarily old-fashioned either but that moment those things that you circle that's something now that storytelling now that mm. adventure storytelling in particular now tends to look more at, at the reasoning behind the characters than mm. it ever did than it ever could in the 50s, the 60s, and even the 70s, because the momentum of it, the realities of getting it on screen, simply meant that they couldn't a great deal of the time, or they didn't think the audience would be interested. The big question that's not asked in a lot of the classic ones is why? Uh, why is this happening? Uh, not being to do with the plot, but yeah. uh, you know, the, the more nuanced things. Why, why uh, does Nyssa find out that the master has killed her father, right, and taken over his body. And she says in Logopolis, a great that great scene where she realizes it's not her father at all. She's been talking to this guy who looks like her father, it's not him. And that he's murdered her father. There's a great scene where Tom, as the doctor says, that's not your father, Missa. And then she realizes it's the master and you get the shock in her face. But it's not that many stories later where it's not it's not spoken of again, you know. <laughs> so these are things that that I, I can see. These are things that Russell T. Davis picked up on when he brought it back. That we must have the emotional story must continue as well as the plot. Uh, so I was thinking in terms of um, why would people just go off with the Doctor? There are so many stories where they'd step into the TARDIS and just are taken away. And there are no questions asked by anybody about, you know, will we ever get back? What's happening? Um, who is he anyway, you know? Who is, who is, who is this doctor? So I, I, I thought um, there must be some kind of unspoken contract, really, that they don't ask too many questions and he will allow him to travel with them. Um, so they don't say, all right, Doctor, what is your name in actual fact? You know, who are you? Because um, Doctor is a title. It is not a name. Who are you? Uh, they, no, no one really pushes that, do they, in the old series? Uh, they do a little bit in the modern one, but even there, they're careful. Yeah. 
they're careful. So I was thinking you know, they must travel with him for a reason and he must allow them to travel with him for a reason. Um, and so, again, and then it ties back into the title, Doctor Who, question mark. Um, who is he? Where is he from? Why does he do what he does? Uh, what motivates him? All those questions that you would ask of any other character in a story. I thought we should really push that a bit more with him. That was the biggest surprise for me listening to this. Uh, literally a, a bolt from the blue. The first time I listened to it, I think I thought... I knew where the story was going to go and the beat it was going to hit. I thought, oh, isn't this isn't this all enjoyable? And it's all it's all sort of um, kind of like a base under siege, monster on the loose kind of thing. It's going to be like this, and this is going to happen. But it didn't actually. It did do those things, but it didn't. And then it gently dips into the mythology behind the series, behind Gallifreyan technology and the Time Lords and the the power structure as well back on Gallifrey. Mm. that imbalance how their society works it's, yeah, not, yeah. it's not doused in it so your themes to the story that you're telling it actually serves them mm. really really well it doesn't break the spell of this the story doesn't all of a sudden become this opus that's a, a, a great sweeping statement on time lord on time lord society and the mm. history of the show and the nature of the character that's going to revolutionize anything it actually underlines something that's fascinating or points to something about the character we'd never noticed or a dark a darker corner to mm. particularly this incarnation of the character that we'd never looked into before but there are other questions in there too about the nature of the science behind it and and the way that the the indigenous people of this planetoid are mm. being are being used the way that mm. they have been taken away from their natural course and yeah. the process of resurrection, stroke regeneration, and how that affects a family unit. Are they still the same people? The, mm. the balance between the four members of this nuclear family that you have as, as a, a core set of characters running through this, we hear them evolve as people. Yeah. Uh, uh, one of the great changes that was made uh, that John introduced, John Ainsworth, the original idea was that you get killed, you're resurrected back to the... There's a chambers that grow an embryo of you based on your DNA. You're grown to adulthood, and then all the memories of your, your previous existence are beamed into mm. your brain, and you're back, right? Yeah. So the idea was that you were killed, and then you're brought back exactly as you were, but without the wounds that killed you, and then you're put back to work. And then John said to me, um, after the first draft, he, he, he said, since this is this mechanism has really been that basically they've gutted a TARDIS, they've, they've uh, ransacked a TARDIS, taken all the technology and augmented it with their own, which is like 19th century technology, and um, created these birthing chambers. But John said, since it's all come from Time Lord technology, why not have them coming back in a different body? the way, same way a Time Lord regenerates into a new body. So I, I don't have them coming back with a different persona, so they're still exactly as they were in terms of their emotional and mental makeup, uh, but they look different physically. And the moment he said that and the moment I did it, I was able to play around with identity and those sort of themes, uh, where the girl comes back with different colored hair, different eyes, she's a different height, 
uh, and later on her little brother goes through the process as well uh, and he comes back different so in my story I, if I was going to do uh, the sex change in a regeneration and the concept was still quite new at the the time that I was writing this, this was 2019 going into 2020. So I was thinking, should, should I go down that road with something that's basically set in season six in 1969 in black and white, you know, before we even know what a Time Lord is. So maybe I should do it. But if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it the way I think it should have been done when they did it on television. And that is basically, it happens they acknowledge it's happened, and then there's not another word said about it because it's normal, you know? To them, it's normal. It's not a big deal. Well, what I appreciated, stepping back from from specifics, nuts and bolts of it, was how you did touch on things that would be revisited in the character's life's lifespan later on on television in a restrained way. There wasn't lots of vernacular, lots of jargon, lots of callbacks. Things weren't mm. called, but there was not the, the the word regeneration wasn't banded around all over mm. the place. For example, it's like oh, it's this, it's that, it's the other. It reminded me of the early days of the new series in two thousand and four, where Gallifrey wasn't mentioned by name for two or three years. It's because why Why would you? These people don't need to know which planet it is. It's a, it's, you, you speak in a sort of... Most people, I think, generally, in normal conversations you have with people you... Certainly total strangers or people you're just getting to know, you kind of speak in a very kind of roundabout way. And mm. that's, I, I thought, the way that you're here for dialogue in this, when we're dealing with fantastical situations, really, ground, really grounds this. And considering that the, the runtime is just an hour, isn't it? it's just yeah. over an hour for it's the entire enough. story... And yeah. the, and there's not a mass of characters in there. They, I, I, but every character has its own function. It's, mm. uh, when you look back on reflection, they do. But when you're listening to it, you get wrapped up in in who in who they are. You feel that they're very very real, which is a combination, obviously, of of your work, of the work of of John and Michael, mm. and of and the Fraser. Did you did you get to work alongside Fraser? Did you get to speak to him before the recording, or if not, did you get, did you get to speak to him afterwards and and congratulate him or thank him? Or so, what was the relationship like? The, any backwards and forwards between yourself and Fraser? Does he know how happy you were with some of those moments? He certainly does now. Yes, uh, at, at the time uh, when it was being recorded, I mean, people think. Because we hear these stories at Big Finish, don't we? That the author gets invited to the recording. That doesn't <laughs> happen at BBC Audio. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it was just recorded. Like I say, the three of them, there's Fraser reading it. There's Michael acting as producer, director, and uh, Neil Gardner, the recordist. So um, I didn't have, I wasn't asked for any notes on how to pronounce names or anything like that. So yeah. for me, the, the, girl, the young girl in it was called uh, Raimi. It's an anagram of Marie who is uh, my adult stepdaughter who died of cancer in 2018. And I wanted to sort of acknowledge her in the story. So I made her name into the anagram Raimi. That's how I pronounce it. Uh, but then when it came out, Fraser was saying Raimi all the time. And uh, so I thought, okay, it's Raimi now. Um, so then we, we get to uh, Big Finish Day and it had only been out about a month. Um, and he was at Big Finish Day in Derby, uh, and uh, Steve Hatcher had very kindly arranged for me to sign a few CDs 
alongside Fraser. You know, the table was put next to him oh, in the chair. Lovely. And uh, so they would come and the fans would come and talk to Fraser and then have a look at what I'm doing sat next to him. And, um, <laughs> and Fraser said, uh, he said, why did you have to give them all those complicated names? <laughs> <laughs> he says, there's a trouble with you lot, you know, Doctor Who writers. Uh, <laughs> you have to come out with these alien sounding names. Um, so I, t I told him, well, you pronounced one of them wrong, but I'm not bothered. <laughs> uh. And he said, he said, I asked Michael at the time, how do, how do I say this, this name? And it was Michael who said, it's Ray, I think it's Reimai. So mm. uh, he followed Michael's direction. Um, it is Reimai now to me. That's how I hear it now. You know, I'm aware that it was Reimai in my head when I wrote it, but Reimai is fine. It sounds like an alien name. It fits the character. And mm. I, I love the way he, he reads it. Yeah. So he does know. He does know I'm thrilled to bits with <laughs> Good, it. Good, yeah. because Fraser is brilliant at submitting to the telling of your of your tale and convincingly conveying every character in it. I, I, I think particularly the way that you both working together separately, as it would happen, put a, um, a mirror up to the doctor here. He's, he's, the inflection in his voice at certain points, you can tell that he's got it. The ending where um, Jamie and Zoe are saying, oh, these people, you know, uh, they're a bit like you in a way, aren't they? You know, and they haven't, they haven't, <laughs> twi they haven't twigged. Um, and when Jamie says, um, you know, you once changed like that, didn't you? Ben and Polly told me you used to be an old man with white hair, and he just says, uh, did they? You know, and just he's very coy right to the end, and <sighs> you can see that um, that Fraser got it. You know, I don't yeah. know whether Michael told him that was how it was to be read or whether he just picks it up but it comes across that he gets what the doctor is doing uh in those scenes where it's not explicitly stated by me as the author it's just coming out in the dialogue um he gets it and i'm thrilled to bits with that this is such an easy thing to talk about will i don't have to mind my tongue or pull any punches i think this is absolutely fantastic and one of the best doctor who audios i've heard in a number of years whatever the range wow. it nestles beautifully into the fibers of the latter part of the second doctor's era with so much ease and those la the language and the references from the real world that you use the, the way that you describe you describe things the way i feel a generation of people who were making the show in the 60s would, and mm. a way in which I think people should kind of do more so now, in very simple mm. terms, like you, you describe something as being, the anvil sort of goes down hard on, on concrete, and you describe manhole covers, and, mm. and something, you know, there's a headpiece in it, attached to a sophisticated piece of technology, that without this piece of technology, the story can't resolve, and you describe it as looking like a colander, which of course, yeah. and if this which was it a would story do. on the television, <laughs> it, would have been, it would have been a page of colander, and so yeah. I, I love that, so it's, it's playful, and it's old school, and yet Yet it's it's very very modern in other respects, and, and that's a really hard um, thing to pull off. Uh, thank thank you, Dan. I, I appreciate that. I appreciate that you picked up on all that too. The the reviewer for Doctor Who magazine, Matt, is it Matt Michael who reviews the audio? That's right. Yeah, um, and he picked up on the fact that I I described him as a as a some someone 
as he's going scrambling into the lift, arms and legs all over the place, like somebody out of a silent movie, I said. Yeah. Uh, in the narrative. And he said that is exactly what he looks like, you know, when he's running around yeah. in, a, in a panic. This little man who's a genius, but he, look, he looks like a scruffy tramp who doesn't know what he's doing. And of course, because uh, the show was still in black and white then, sometimes that was in silhouette. And yeah, so it, yeah, it, does, yeah. it does look that way. I mean, it's also thoroughly entertaining and the story really, really rips along. And yet for all that it does evoke that era of the show, the black and white era of the show, this is a time of the show that finished 55 years ago. <laughs> it, it, it does, it pulls you in and it carries on at such a pace that that hour just passes like that. What can I say? Uh, everybody's put really pulled together on on it you know and i i can take uh, uh, the credit for the ideas and and the writing of the dialogue and so forth uh, and the, the way some things are described but really i've got to say thank you to john ainsworth as the editor and michael stevens as the producer and their input and david rucroft with that that amazing uh, sound design little bits of incidental music and sound effects and it was just a thrill as well to to hear that Patrick Troughton theme music, you know, at the beginning. Diddle-a-din, diddle-a-din. The Delia Derbyshire, the second mix of the Delia Derbyshire version. Yeah. And then to have my name read out under that that music. Wow. That video you played earlier of the title sequence and yeah. the title. I had a there's a guy on YouTube who who calls himself Mergen Man Four. And um he he'll create title sequence, you know, for you. Some people have had their own face put in it and stuff like that. You know, they'll have the Peter Davison Starfield build up their own face. But yeah. I, I said, can you just do um, the Patrick Troughton titles with the title and my name at the beginning and do a credits at, at the end? So there you, there you go there. You've got the all the characters I invented going up as though they'd been in it. Um, and the people who produced the audio and a, and a dedication to my mother, who sadly, because she died one month before it was commissioned, she never knew I was going to be doing this, you know. Uh, so I thought the least I can do is have a, a you know, a memorial to her. Yeah. Uh, so on the inside cover, it's it's got that memorial to her. Uh, but I got I got the date of the year of her birth wrong by one year. It says 1946 on the inside cover. So when I got Murgerman Ford to do these mock titles, I, I thought we've got to fix that and have a dedication put in the closing credits with the correct year of her birth. So I was able to fix it there. Doctor Who, The Resurrection Plant by Will Hadcroft, read by Fraser Hines, with sound design by David Rawcroft. It's available now from all stockists. Links are in the description to the video and the show notes to the podcast as well. And seeing as this release has done so brilliantly, both critically and commercially, there can't be many of us, Will, who were surprised to hear that you've been commissioned to write a further audio original. Ooh. Now, you might not be able to talk much about it, but I'm going to do the very best I can, everybody, to get as much as I can out of Will when we get back from this break. So yes, here's Kevin to fill you in about some of the other treats for the years that you could be missing courtesy of the Fandom Podcast Network. Don't go away. Thank you. 
thank you for listening. We hope you're enjoying this podcast. Here are the other great shows on the Fandom Podcast Network. Culture Clash, where we discuss the latest in entertainment and pop culture. Blood of Kings, our show covering the entire Highlander universe. Couch Potato Theater, we celebrate our favorite movies. And Time Warp, our fandom flashback show discussing a year in movies and our favorite retro movie, TV, and pop culture topics. Good evening, discussing all things Alfred Hitchcock. Hair Metal Podcast, we cover the rock metal music of the 80s and early 90s. Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast, discussing the time-traveling Doctor Who universe. Lethal Mullet, an action film podcast, covering the 80s, 90s, and beyond. Also, check out the Lethal Mullet Network for more great podcasts. What a Piece of Junk, our Star Wars podcast. Making Treks, a Star Trek podcast, with a deep dive into the final frontier. The Fandom Show. Our Fandom Podcast Network live YouTube show discussing the hottest topics in fandom. The True Believers MCU Podcast discussing the Marvel Cinematic and Television Universe. Union Federation, our Star Trek and the Orville show. And we're proud to welcome the BQN Network to the Fandom Podcast Network. Please visit our friends on the BQN Network, a Star Trek Universe podcast that also includes your favorite topics, movies, history, superheroes, and more. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on YouTube. The Fandom Podcast Network is also on all major podcast platforms. The Fandom Podcast Network audio master feed is on Podbean at fpnet.podbean.com. You can find the Fandom Podcast Network on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can email us at fandompodcastnetwork at gmail.com. Thank you so much for listening, and remember, respect others and enjoy your fandom. Yes, we've teased and tantalised you again there. And we can even clothe you too. There's merch to match all of those shows, including Type 40. Just head over to tpublic.com, search for the Fandom Podcast Network, and you'll soon see a store full of all the team colours for all of the shows on everything from T-shirts and phone cases up to enormous tapestries. Seeing is believing. Treat yourself, treat your other selves. All goes to support the Fandom Podcast Network. Into the bargain too, so everybody wins i've got more more excellent news here because will hadcroft he's still here with us he couldn't get away after all we've just heard the the story behind the success story that was the resurrection plant that is the resurrection plant and there's more on the way isn't there will so what can Ooh. you tell us about the follow-up you know the title who what where what what, what can you say well 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 what can i say that's a good question uh, it was very, it was exciting to be asked to do another. Uh, when you deliver it and you know it's been signed off and they're going to record it, blah, 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 there's at the back of your mind, because it's your, if it's your first one, you know, first mainstream success, if you like, and the first doc, proper Doctor Who you've done, yeah. the big question in the back of your mind is uh, is this going to be like the one hit wonder, you know? Uh, are they going to go, well, that was very nice, but we, we won't be having any more from him, you know? Uh, so it was very nice to know that they were having more from me. And when the email came through, John said, um, we would like you to do another one. And uh, Michael would like you to do Fifth Doctor and Adric. Um, so that for me, that was interesting because it had gone from send us three story ideas and three different Doctor and Companion lineups to Michael wants you to do. So th that was that was good for my self-esteem, if you like, to, to know that they felt they could trust me with a particular lineup. 
and say we want you to try this next. So I had to do, um, again, three storylines or three sets of paragraphs for potential story ideas for Fifth Doctor and Adric. I, I said to John, does he mean, you know, in some contrived way, get rid of the girls and just focus on Fifth Doctor and Adric? Or does he yeah. mean the Fifth Doctor era? You know, and John said, well, I think he means that really. It's Adric, Tegan and Nyssa. So that's, uh, that's what I've done. So it's Fifth Doctor, Adric, Tegan and Nyssa. Um, again, uh, I hope this isn't going to become a trend, but again, they've already changed the title. <laughs> so <laughs> I won't tell you what the um, original title was. Okay. And uh, John gave me three potential uh, alternatives, and one was Dark Contract. So I thought, oh, I like the sound of that. Yes, Dark Contract. So that's uh, what we're going with. It's listed on Amazon, Amazon already for release on the 1st of August, Doctor Who Dark Contract. Uh, it, this is a real fanboy thing, but uh, to have the diamond logo on it, you know, because uh, Resurrection <laughs> Plants has the, the, the Jody logo. And I don't, I don't mind, I didn't like it when it first showed up, but I kind of grew to accept it. That's the Doctor hmm. Who logo. Uh, so when it graced the Resurrection Plants, I thought, yeah, it's doc proper Doctor Who, it's got the logo and everything. But now we're on the Diamond logo. Well, that's something else, isn't it? You know, to have like, yeah. like the old Target books, the Doctor Who, you know, without the diamond yeah. at the back. Um, it's going to look like a Target novelization on audio, you know. Uh, so that ticks another fanboy box for me. It's set in Dickensian London. Uh, I can't tell you any more than that. I can't tell you what oh. happens to them. Um, <laughs> but there's, there's okay. high intrigue. And um, mm -hmm. and the dark contract where you'll find out what that is uh, between the Dickensian Londoners and some other people, you'll find out in August. <laughs> oh, this sounds absolutely fascinating. Dark contract. It sounds like an Oliver Stone film or something like that. Doesn't it it's it does, like... doesn't it? It does. I, I had a great time because like researching it, I wanted, like I did with the resurrection plants, I wanted it to feel authentic. And um, years ago, it would have been 2006, the Andrew Davis adaptation of Bleak House. Um, oh, yeah. The multi-part uh, thing on BBC One. Yeah, yeah. And that launched quite a lot of careers that pe people who have become very famous since uh, were, were in that. Uh, and I thought, well, I'll re-watch that just to get the rhythm of how Dickensian characters speak, you know, and that kind of 19th century thing um so i re i soaked all that up re ready as i had an idea in mind for the story i knew i wanted to go there and um yeah there's there's i can tell you a little bit of a funny tale um we my wife and i when as i was putting this together yeah. we were drive driving through um wigan west Orton, wigan these are places in the northwest of england there was a, a particular mill she wanted to go to you know where they convert these mills into shopping places yes. uh and she wanted to go to this mill and i thought, oh, go on then so so we, we had to find this mill and we went down to get to it we went down flapperfold lane right and I just saw, so I saw that on um, <laughs> on this sign, Flapperfold Lane. And I just said to Carol, my wife, I said, that sounds like something straight out of Charles Dickens, doesn't it? Um, so there's a character in the story called Mr. Flapperfold. Uh, 
because it Fabulous. sounds like something out of a Dickens novel. It and, does. Uh, when I got my my notes back from John in the margin, it says, "What a fantastic name!" You know, so <laughs> Mr. Flapperfall won't be getting cut, I don't think. Uh, it sounds like somebody who sells cravats or something, but you've probably got something <laughs> a lot, lot better in mind for this. This is going to be this is going to be awesome. I cannot, I cannot wait to see Doctor yeah. Who Dark Contract by Will Hadcroft join this line of audio originals from the BBC. August? Oh, August the 1st, is it's down to be released. Who's going to read it, Dan? That's the question. Ooh, who's going to read it? Oh, that's I so... I've given it a name, um, but going yeah. off what happened with Wendy Pabry, I don't say it's okay. <laughs> it's, it's not them. Whoever yeah. you get out of those four, and I know it's going to be one of it, those four. It is, it is going to be one of those four. I'm going to be a happy um, punter. It's going to be I was, fine. I was giving the name, I was like, hmm, yes, I can see that working. Um, if David Rucroft or David Darlington or whoever it is that does the sound design for this one, if it's anything like the previous, it's going to sound great. You know, the background noises. And, of course, the Peter Howell arrangement of the theme, which kind of harks back to my young life. You know, I was yeah. 10 when that first appeared on season 18 and was staggered when I first heard it. But the single of the theme music with Tom Baker doffing his burgundy hat ah. uh, and then the year after i bought bought it again because peter again. davison was on the cover <laughs> exactly the same record but it had to have the one with peter davison on the front uh so it, it, it sort of it ties back into my early years you know developing as a youngster so to have that theme music there's a big payoff there really to have that version of the theme music on something that i've written and read by someone who was in that era yeah it's it's going to be a different kind of thrill that for me. The Troughton one was great, but but this is this is from my time now, you know, as a Doctor Who fan. Well, I haven't got time to push you anymore anyway, because that's the old girl starting up calling time on another episode of Type 40, a Doctor Who podcast. Another one's on the way, though, of course. Look out for that wherever you found this. It could have been at the dedicated home feed for Type 40 at type40.podbean.com. Maybe we rolled up on the podcatcher of your choice, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, all those places. We're also on YouTube, the world's largest streaming platform on the Type 40 channel with extended video editions of each and every show now and exclusive extra Type 40, some with Will, come to think of it, as well as our sister show, Type 40 Live, your weekly live stream magazine show, completely raw, completely live, where anything can happen, anything can be said, and often is. So get all of that at Type 40. Doctor Who on YouTube. We're still on the fabulous Fandom Podcast Network's master feed, loaded up with so many treats for your ears. Never mind on the weekly, it's coming at you practically on the daily. Please consider a trip sideways in time for more quality shows from the FPN. Could be you'd like to have your say on all of this and that. Why not reach out to us through our social media, Instagram and X at Type40DoctorWho, or you can email us Type40DoctorWho at Outlook.com. There's always more to be said, too, when you meet the masses of new companions that have joined our long-standing community there on Facebook in the Type 40 Facebook group. Yeah, there's still a few months to wait, isn't there, until the Doctor and Ruby continue their travels. We'll help one another through that together. So, Mr. Will Hadcroft, where can people find you on social media? Which ones do you do and where do you do them? Well, I'm still on Twitter or X. That's 
at Hadcroft Will, so back to front, because somebody hacked into the original one, had <laughs> to get rid of it. So it's at Hadcroft Will on Twitter, and I'm on uh, Facebook as Will Hadcroft. I'm the right way around there. Uh, and also I've got willhadcroft.com. I've not done much with that for ages, but that's a website about my past ventures as well as the resurrection plans. I'll have to update it with the dark contract once once the cover design comes out for that. Uh, I'll bang that on there and update the website. And people can still order, can't they, the resurrection plants at the stockist of their choice, can't they? Absolutely. It's on CD. If you, if you like physical media like I do, I like something I could touch, a CD. Well, you can also get it as um, download, if that's your thing. Download it to your phone or whatever. There you go. The choice is yours, everybody. You can, you can find me on Instagram and X as the Facebook, where I'm wheezing and groaning, ranting and raving about all things geeky inside and outside of the TARDIS. And sometimes in real life as well, I do have a real life. I know it's strange as it may seem to mm -hmm. believe. I can't wait to hear Dark Contract. You're going to have to come back and take us inside that too at some point in the future. But for now, congratulations again on the success of the Resurrection Plant. And thank you for your company. Thank you so much, Dan. And as ever, thanks to you for listening. We always have the time. If you have the space here at Type 40, take care. Back soon. Bye-bye.